If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Tonight, Miss Barbecue is in conversation with Oliver Luke Alpuche, owner of the Redline Bar and an organizer of the downtown LA Proud Festival. Wenzel talks to iconic TV writer Stan Zimmerman about his new web series and play. And I'll be talking with Chef Paul McCullough and his handsome and accomplished husband Jeremy Stanford because it's springtime again. And so we're going to run the tomato piece again. <laughs> but first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Sarah Sweeney. And I'm Wenzel Jones. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news inter-affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 8, 2017. While the world has been reeling over the horrific Syrian gas attack and its aftermath, The global queer community was rocked this week by reports out of Chechnya that dozens, if not hundreds, of gay men, or men perceived to be gay, are being rounded up, held in secret detention facilities, humiliated, and tortured. Men in a detainee's phone contacts are also being arrested and abused. According to several reports, the men are being targeted in connection with their non-traditional sexual orientation or suspicion of such. Some raids of known gay establishments have turned violent, and at least three men are already known to have died in the purge. Novaya Gazeta, the independent Russian newspaper that first broke the story, has published sometimes graphic accounts of three survivors. One photo shows a homemade electric chair in which one of the victims says he was tortured. No one has been able to explain the sudden anti-gay crackdown. A government spokesperson claimed that there are no gay people in Muslim-majority Chechnya and you can't detain and harass someone who doesn't exist in the republic. Chechnya is part of Russia, but its regional government enjoys a certain degree of autonomy. The Kremlin has denied any knowledge of the purge. The foreign ministers from the U.S., U.K., and the European Union have joined a chorus of condemnation from the civilized world and are specifically calling for Russia's urgent intervention. The regional LGBTQ advocacy group, ILGA Europe, said in an April 7th update that the confidential 24-hour hotline for survivors and witnesses, set up by the Russian LGBT network on March 29th, is receiving an increasing number of calls. Practical help is being provided to a number of victims who wish to leave Chechnya, and communication continues with a number of others. 
In other news, a U.S. federal appeals court ruled for the first time this week that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that forbids workplace discrimination based on sex protects lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, too. Max Pringle of Pacifica News reports. The ruling by the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is the first time a federal appellate court has come to that conclusion. The decision comes after the 7th Circuit rejected a July finding by three of its own judges that the law doesn't cover sexual orientation discrimination and ordered a rare rehearing by the full court. The entire court reheard oral arguments in November and directed the toughest questions at a lawyer who argued only Congress could extend protections. The case stems from a lawsuit by Indiana teacher Kimberly Hively, who alleged that the Ivy Tech Community College in South Bend didn't hire her full-time because she is a lesbian. The 8-3 to three vote by the entire Chicago-based Seventh Circuit is notable because decisions by three-judge appeals court panels are rarely reconsidered, let alone overturned. The Seventh Circuit, which hears cases originating in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin, is also considered to be a relatively conservative court. Five members of the eight-judge majority in this case were appointed by Republican presidents. Judge Diane Wood, a Clinton appointee, wrote for the Seventh Circuit majority that any discomfort, disapproval, or job decision based on the fact that the complainant, woman or man, dresses differently, speaks differently, or dates or marries a same-sex partner is a reaction purely and simply based on sex. That means that it falls within Title VII's prohibition against sex discrimination. In his concurring opinion, Reagan appointee Judge Richard Posner wrote that I don't see why firing a lesbian because she's in the subset of women who are lesbian should be thought any less a form of sex discrimination than firing a woman because she's a woman. The decision clears the way for Kimberly Hively's employment discrimination lawsuit to proceed. A lower court had dismissed her case. Ivy Tech Community College spokesperson Jeff Panter told reporters that Ivy Tech respects and appreciates the opinions rendered by the judges of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and does not intend to seek Supreme Court review. The college denies that it discriminated against the plaintiff on the basis of her sex or sexual orientation and will defend the plaintiff's claims on the merits in the trial court. However, the Atlanta-based 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals concluded last month that Title VII does not protect LGB people, so the issue will likely need to be resolved down the road by the U.S. Supreme Court. Federal appeals courts have, for the past few years, determined that discrimination against workers for being transgender amounts to sex discrimination under Title VII. But this is the first U.S. appellate court to rule that Title VII also protects workers on the basis of sexual orientation. A three-judge panel of the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, based in Lubbock, Texas, heard arguments this week in one of the first challenges to a state law that makes discrimination against LGBT people legal if it's based on sincerely held religious belief or moral conviction. The 5th Circuit handles cases from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. The Mississippi state legislature passed a law in 2016, not long after the U.S. Supreme Court made civil marriage equality the law of the land, that would let merchants and government employees cite religious belief to deny services to same-gender couples. So-called religious freedom bills, like that one, are popping up in states all over the country. The Mississippi statute specifies its three foundational beliefs. 
that marriage is only between one man and one woman, that sexual intercourse should only take place within heterosexual marriage, and that a person's gender is determined at birth and unchangeable. District Court Judge Carlton Reeves decided that the law was unconstitutional and granted a temporary injunction against its enforcement pending final resolution of the case. It could eventually be the first test of so-called religious liberty laws at the U.S. Supreme Court. Mississippi Attorney General Jim Hood, a Democrat, refused to defend the law, so the appeal by Republican Governor Phil Bryant is being handled by private attorneys, led by the Arizona-based Christian legal group Alliance Defending Freedom, which helped write the law. Two challenges to HB 1523 were combined for the Fifth Circuit panel to review. One by Doma Slayer, Roberta Kaplan, says the law is unconstitutional based on the First Amendment separation of church and state, while the other, by the LGBT advocacy group Lambda Legal, says the law should be overturned based on constitutional equal protection guarantees. Members of the three-judge panel are all considered to be politically conservative. One was appointed by Ronald Reagan, and the other two were picked by George W. Bush. And in a third notable U.S. court case this week, this one in Colorado, District Judge Raymond P. Moore, an Obama appointee, ruled that a property owner violated both the Federal Fair Housing Act and the state's Anti-Discrimination Act by refusing to rent a two-bedroom townhouse in Boulder to a couple and their children. Landlord DePiki Avanti first said she turned them away because she was concerned about the kids being too noisy. She subsequently said that she wouldn't rent to them because of the family's uniqueness. Rachel and Tonya Smith are a lesbian couple, and Rachel is transgender. They've been married for seven years, and their two kids are aged seven and three. Lambda legal staff attorney Omar Gonzalez Pagan celebrated the ruling on behalf of his clients. For the first time, he said, a federal court has ruled that the Fair Housing Act's sex discrimination prohibitions apply to discriminations based on stereotypes about sexual orientation and gender identity. Gonzalez Pagan told Reuters that Lambda attorneys were working with Avanti's lawyers to resolve the case without further litigation. And finally, Colorado Judge Neil Gorsuch was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on April 7th to fill the seat of the late Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. The vote of 54 to 45, a simple majority, broke with longstanding Senate tradition of requiring 60 votes for confirmation of high court justices after Democrats and independents united to filibuster the Trump nominee. After refusing to even hold hearings on the Supreme Court nomination by Barack Obama of Merrick Garland 14 months ago, the Senate's Republican majority leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky resorted to that simple majority vote this week, referred to as the nuclear option, to put Gorsuch on the bench. The bruising confirmation battle underscored the sharp partisan divide in Congress that only seems to be getting worse. Advocates for LGBTQ equality worry about a judge who ruled in the Hobby Lobby case in favor of that company's refusal to include contraceptive coverage in its employee health plan based on the owner's religious beliefs. Gorsuch also wrote a dissertation in 2004 arguing against civil marriage equality. While he said during his confirmation hearings that marriage equality is now settled law, Gorsuch hinted that he might look favorably on measures allowing religious-based discrimination against married same-gender couples. 
On the other hand, some judges with conservative reputations have tempered their outlook on social issues once they've gotten on the high court, most notably Reagan appointee Justice Anthony Kennedy, for whom Gorsuch once clerked. Kennedy has written all three high court decisions since 2003, extending the rights of gay, lesbian, and bisexual Americans. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 8, 2017. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Sarah Sweeney. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Downtown Los Angeles is undergoing a rainbow renaissance, so Miss Barbecue, our DTLA queen, sat down with the DTLA king, Oliver Luke Alpuche. Tonight, I have with me one of the most prominent members of the downtown LA gay scene, the owner of Redline, and the president of Proud Fest Downtown LA, Oliver Luke Alpucci. What is your background, Oliver? Before I opened Redline, I worked for Nike for many, many years as a visual merchandiser and a GM. Okay. So my background is in retail. Okay. Are you originally from Los Angeles? Yeah, I'm one of the unicorns. <laughs> I swear. Born and raised in Los Angeles zip code. Not... The Valley, not anywhere else. Grew up writing Los Angeles as my address. Oh, wow. Where'd you grow up at? Highland Park. Okay, okay. When did you come out, by the way? People ask me that, and I'm just like, I don't think I actually ever came out. Well, I have an older gay brother, and then I have an identical twin that was gay. So my older brother came out. I saw kind of how that was with my parents, and it was not good for a month or two. But I remember my mom asking, are you like your brother? I'll just die. And I'm like, nah, no, you won't. You'll just suffer depression for a little while, but you'll be okay. <laughs> that was me coming out. That was it. <laughs> so, How many kids in your family? There's six boys. Really? Yeah. I'm the oldest of six. You are? Yeah. I'm the youngest of six. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We called ourselves the Black Brady Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> what would that put us? I don't know. It's more like cheaper by the dozen for us. Is it? We're really? like all boys. What's your gay twin's name, and are you close? Dominic, and we are close. Does he come to Redline? He does. People think I'm the rudest person. I swear it's not me. If I don't say hi, it's not me. It's him. He probably doesn't know you. <laughs> Blame it on it a twin. happens all the time. Blame it at, on the twin. I was at Redline on Tuesday, so I took a day off, and he helps me out when I need a day off. Okay. So he met some people on Sunday. Everything was great. They came back on Tuesday. I don't know who they are. And they started talking to me. And they thought I was him the entire time. And they thought I was rude. I was like, no, sorry. I've never (laughs) met you before. Now, you're the owner of Redline, Mm -hmm. one of three gay establishments in downtown L.A. It's been a long time coming. There's Bar Mattachine and there's Precinct. What elements did you really want to bring as a gay establishment in downtown LA? I've lived in downtown for almost eight years now. So I grew up in LA and when I spread my wings and flew out of my nest, 
I lived in a bunch of different cities around Los Angeles. Culver City, Studio City, West Hollywood. Downtown became my home because it's more community-oriented. Like, you say hi to your neighbors, you run into them, you chit-chat on the street. It's yeah. just a nice feeling where I didn't get that anywhere else. I grew up with that. Knowing my neighbors, they would watch mm-hmm. our dogs. And coming downtown, that's kind of the environment that I felt very comfortable. Like, my neighbors actually do watch my dog now, and we say hi, and... That's what I wanted to bring to downtown by opening up Redline. I wanted that community space. I wanted to have a community meeting space for the LGBT community in downtown. Like I said, eight years of being downtown, and you see the community changing. You see a lot of LGBT members of the community just around, but then you're like, where are they? Like, yeah. Where do, no they where, where do they to? go? Yeah, they all disappear. Um, into their own little worlds. Yeah. Like, for me, I loved living downtown. I like that city feel. I like not having a car. But the aspect that was missing was that nightlife and that social life. And then, so, like, after a while, if no one was going to do it, fine. I'll do it. You'll do it yourself. Yeah. So you see Redline not as a nightclub, more of a community space. Yeah. A lot of our regulars are like, it's our cheers. This is where they know me, they know the staff, everyone that works there. And then we know them, and it's more... Like building that little red line family Mm -hmm. is what I wanted to bring to the table. Okay, Oliver, it's my first time at Redline. What would I see? Redline is a different kind of gay bar because we are completely open. There's all windows. So when you walk up to Redline, we're a corner unit and it's all windows. And we did that intentionally because most gay bars are like, oh, no, it's like back corner, dark. We were like, no, no. Times, they are changing. We want to be open and integrated with the city. So we have, like, you walk up and you walk up to a 15-foot open window. Like, the entire window just opens up. So you could sit at a counter and look out to the street. A lot of natural light during the day. You have a nice aesthetic where the bar is. There's, like, golden tile. There's nice granite countertops. It's nice, but comfortable. It's not bougie. Um, (laughs) But it's still done nice. It's like a home. We moved in, and we're slowly adding things and changing things and making it a comfortable feel. Well, the space can transform so much, too. That's what I like about it, that you can... There's couches over in the corner with lights and stuff, and then you can put out tables all in the middle there, but then you can take away all the tables and make it a whole whole new atmosphere, too. We definitely transform. I guess it all depends on what time you come. Like, during the day, we have a nice brunch, and you could have, like, bottomless brunch, and then at night, we transform into a full-on dance party. Let's cut over to DTLA Proudfest. The Proudfest came about because downtown itself is a changing landscape. And the perception of downtown to the LGBT community is not, um, they don't know what's going on. So in the last year, three gay bars opened up in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted to celebrate that. Downtown is so comfortable. I could walk down the street holding hands. I could kiss my boyfriend. It's a neighborhood where I could be myself. That's what we wanted to celebrate. And with all these gay establishments opening up, and there, before the bars, there were tons of restaurants owned by LGBT members. And we kind of wanted just to celebrate that, celebrate what's happening downtown. You have this amazing new, like, revitalization happening, and we just wanted to celebrate. So we got together, myself, the owner of Precinct, Mattachine, and New Jalisco all came together 
And we're like, hey, let's do something. We had so much support from the neighborhood, from the historic core, from Persian Square. So everything kind of fell into place. And we're like, okay, we're going to do this. Oliver, describe the experience for our listeners who weren't there. The DTLA Proud Fest experience was amazing. You walked into the historic Persian Square area. It's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's kind of feels like a fortress, but we really transformed that. And we utilize the space so amazingly. You walked in and there was the main stage. There was the amphitheater full of grass that you could sit and lounge. We had a pop-up water park called Summer Tramp with water slides and pools, um, DJs on each side of the park, food trucks. We had community booths. We didn't have a lot of corporate logos anywhere. It was more just community-based. So we tried to get as many people from downtown to really represent, and hopefully that's what people got from it. But it was a day of just celebrating, of being proud. Even with the name Proud, it's evolution. We are proud. There's no, like, we have pride. It's we're here, and we're excited, and we are proud, and... We're past pride. We're we're past pride. It's the evolution. It's like, this is it. It could happen anywhere, anytime. I look at the pictures, and I remember, like, everyone was just happy and smiling. And, of course, I love glitter, so everything was shiny and glittery. (laughs) And it was just an amazing experience. And I hope that's what people got out of it. You could feel it. They were having fun. And then when you stop and look, everyone was just smiling and being nice to each other. There wasn't any attitude. There wasn't anything. Everyone was just like, oh, let's just be happy. And it was just a good feeling. There was a general confusion that the Proud Festival was reaction to Christopher Street West. There was. Would you like let's to put it? that to let's rest. Put that, no, let's put no, that to no, rest. and no. <laughs> there was a confusion, but DTLA Proud Festival was not a reaction to what was happening with Christopher Street West Pride. We already had it planning. This goes back, like, when I first opened Redline, we wanted to do a festival to, like, celebrate this new coming to downtown. Of course, when we, we got two days notice that we were going to open, so we couldn't. So we waited a year, and after a year, it's like, oh, you know what? We could do this, and we became good friends with Thor and Brian from Precinct and Garrett from Mattachine. We're like, hey, is this something? I've been part of the community, so like even the historic core was, do you guys want to do something downtown? They were so supportive, and all these people came together, and everything kind of lined up, and we're like, yes, let's do this. And then everything happened with Christopher Street Russ. So it wasn't reactionary, but I mean. And how long did you have to do this? We only had three months to pull it off. Three months to do a festival, which usually takes a A year. year A year to do it. We felt it. Yeah, we did feel it in the crunch, but the results were amazing. I was proud at the Proud Fest. I felt so proud to be a part of it. And the people who that was there, the diversity that was there, what was represented there, the air of community as opposed to commercialization, the air of community with the organizations that were there. I think you should be very proud of yourself. Thank you. Of a job well done. With all the people that were involved and so forth, what was the best part of ProudFest and what was the worst part of ProudFest? The best part of ProudFest is the fact that we pulled it off. 
<laughs> in three months. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing feeling because we stayed true to what we said we were going to. We didn't segue. We didn't let anyone say like, oh, no, this is what you need to do or this is how you do it or this is how you get fundraising. You have to have corporate sponsors. We really stayed true to making sure that it focused on downtown, what's happening here. The entire main stage was programmed by the community that works downtown or is connected to downtown in some way, shape, or form. That was my proudest moment because everyone on the main stage had a connection to the community. And that, to me, is worth celebrating. And that's what we want to go forward is making sure that the festival reflects the community that is downtown and how diverse it is. Um, The worst thing, I think the lines were like... You can tell me. I think, well... (laughs) Oh, no, there's no microphones. There's no microphones. Give me the tea. Um, It's not the worst thing. Like, I You didn't expect expect that many people. Yeah, I always... A lot of people were like, they didn't expect it to blow up the way it did. It was insane, and it was amazing, I think. But see, that's not the worst thing. That's amazing. That's that's amazing. It's an amazing thing, but... It was definitely overwhelming. If anyone saw me there, I was in gym shorts and a tank top because I was supposed to go home and change. And I got there at 9 a.m., and and I was setting up, and I never did. I didn't get home till midnight because it was just so overwhelming. And I was like, no, I don't want to leave. This is amazing. We just need to try to get through these lines. We need to... I was selling tickets out of a messenger bag for drink tickets. We were like line control. We got through it and we learned a lot this year and Mm -hmm. we're going to make it better next year. But it was, yeah, it was just such a good feeling to see so many people come out and I hope they enjoyed it. Get ready for next year. Get ready for next year. This is Miss Barbecue with Mr. Oliver El Puche. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? So maybe I'll see you. We can forget all our troubles, forget all our cares, so go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. And with characteristic modesty, our own Miss Barbecue failed to mention that at Proudfest, she was a stunning vision in gold and back-combed hair. Of course you she had was. to see it to believe it. And our own Matt McLaughlin was live on stage with the gay gays. So oh, I love the gay gays. I know. So if you missed it, try it again next year. Well, I guess it's this year now. Yes, it does. <laughs> if you need more info, go to redlinedtla.com. And still to come, I'll be talking to Stan Zimmerman, who is a writer on The Golden Girls, The Gilmore Girls, and Roseanne. He wrote the infamous girl-on-girl kiss scene. And Chef Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford tell you everything you need to know about planting those tomatoes now so you get some nice fruit later. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Marion Carstairs, eccentric British powerboat racer. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in London in 1900, Marion Carstairs constantly reinvented herself. As she grew up, she wore men's clothes, got tattooed, and was open about her attraction to women. She married once for a short time, but only to inherit a standard oil fortune. Enjoying the nickname Joe, she built and raced powerboats, and in the 1920s was the fastest woman on water. 
1934, she bought her own 800-acre island in the Bahamas, which she named Whale Key. Roads, houses, and a harbor were built, creating her own empire. There, she lavishly entertained her friends and lovers, including Mabel Mercer and Tallulah Bankhead. Oddly enough, Carstairs always carried her small leather doll, named Lord Todd Wadley, whom she treated as her dearest friend. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, John DeBoer. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. On KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. So one of IMRU's favorite guests stopped by the other day, Stan Zimmerman, and uh, we sat and chatted about his new series that's going to be on Telefilms, the company that reminds us that lesbian visibility matters. Anyway, let's give it a listen. It's always a delight to have Stan Zimmerman here. So welcome. Thank you for having me back. We're here to talk about, well, many, many things. So many things. things. But let's just start with your new series, Sex and Execs. And that's S-E-C-S, as an abbreviation for secretary. Secretaries, yeah. Yes. So anyway, the Lazy Man version is office-based sitcom. What would you say it is? It's kind of a Rashomon. That's the classy way of saying Mm -hmm. it. It is an office comedy, one day in the life of a women's athletic wear company. And we see it from two points of view, the secretaries or the assistants and the bosses, which would be the execs. Why do you think the office environment is such an evergreen source for comedy? Because you're throwing all these crazy people together that would not normally be together. You know, you choose who your friends are. In an office situation, you are just put in the office with crazy people and then with the air conditioning thrown in and God knows what else is coming through those vents. And uh, insanity ensues. Now you've got Olivia Dabo in the show playing Leslie, the power lesbian who's just back from maternity leave, who is hell on wheels. If you want to talk about women's at leisure wear, I am all ears. But if you want to talk about those other topics, my assistant will set up a lunch once I hire a new one. That's right, back in business and already slitting throats. Why does every office have to have one of those? You mean a tiger lady? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's tough when you're a boss and you're a woman and all that that brings to the table. And you have to not only be sensitive, but you also have to be aggressive. And the years of, I'm sure you've heard stories, you can't cry at work and you've got to be strong. And we thought that was such an interesting setup of who she was before she had a baby. And then when she comes back to work, people are treating her like a little mommy. And she wants to be that power woman. So really, how do you juggle those two? The thing about offices, too, is every single one of those characters, I either have worked with them or I have been them. Which one were you? Well, I was, of course, Marlon when I was much, much younger. (laughs) Because when he sits here and knocks off his five-year plan about... Year one, I snag a rich CEO. Years two to four, I travel the world maxing his platinum visa. Year five, I catch him doing squats and his personal trainer hired Gloria Allred to torpedo the prenup. And guess who becomes Weeho's most eligible sugar chicken? Harvey Milk must be rolling in his grave. I remember being young enough to think this could, this could work. Did you hook up with any of your bosses? I did not. I okay. did not. It was the 80s, and yes. I really was never in the right environment. But I thought, 
that is hitting the nail on the head. Oh, I was sexually harassed before sexual harassment was, you know, something to fear. How did that happen? How did that Uh, happen? A boss would come behind me and massage my shoulders, and it was very uncomfortable. I was just out of college, in my last few months of college, and I was doing an internship in an office. And, you know, you didn't say anything back then. We didn't even have a term for it, really. I just knew that it was very wrong, uh, but you just kept working because you wanted to keep the job. What kind of an office was it? It was, uh, now you're going to make me name names. <laughs> I'll never say. Well, well no, I mean, uh, I So would... I've been both. I've been yeah. the boss and the assistant, yeah. so that has helped in writing this piece. I worked in such boring offices, I can't even imagine it happening there, so I assume it was somewhat creative? It was creative. Okay. It was actually a casting office. Now I'm going to really Oh, okay, well. There you go. I know, you totally expect <laughs> and that. And I remember Tom office. Cruise coming in after he had just filmed Taps. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was his first film, and he had that cute little shaved army school haircut. And he was literally bouncing off the couch. So it was not, Oprah was not the first couch he bounced <laughs> off of. And he was so excited because he just made a movie and it was his first one. And it was just like you could just tell he had, uh-huh. you know, the, that it factor, as they say. He was a cute little thing in his day. Yes, though. he was. And then I, when I first moved to LA, I was doing anything to make, you know, even $100, and I did extra work on Risky Business. Oh. And so there, you can see the back of me walking down large amount, which was supposedly Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I did remind him of that moment in the office in New and York. And he totally remembered He it. did remember me, or at least reacted <laughs> like he did. He was enough of a star then to know, just say, yes, I remember, of course I do. But then they asked me to go the next day to do the scene at the house when the prostitutes came. Mm-hmm. And this is the one regret I have in Hollywood. Would, they said it would be a nude scene, mm-hmm. and I was so ashamed of my body back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I only was that skinny, you know, today. And I, I, I said know. no. I said no. I, I and know. There was no nude scene in it at all, and to, I could have to have the twenty-one version of yourself naked on oh film somewhere. Oh my god! Can you imagine? Oh yeah. So how do you get these casts together for your shows? Because you've got some real names here. You've got Olivia Dabo, who was back in the day in Wonder Years, and you've got Mindy Sterling, who was in the... Um... Austin Powers. Thank you. I can never remember that I character's Carly. Name. I mean, she's done a lot. Exactly. Right? And then, of course, Sandra Bernhard, the iconic alternative comic. I mean, she was sort of a late 80s. She was the funny woman, but she wasn't like the other funny women. Well, originally from The King of Comedy with Robert De Niro, and then we actually worked on Roseanne together, but Mm -hmm. I met her years before, and we tried to develop a sitcom for her, which we sold to Showtime, called Sandra Bernhardt, Trapped in a Movie of the Week. And it was kind of before they did all these crazy things, and it was Sandra being trapped each week in one of those horrible movies, like the pilot was, she got every disease possible, and we were just going to make fun of those funny but it never happened. But How did that script. not fly? That I don't great. know. Have you but tried to repitch it? No, we have not, but we should. So we've always stayed in touch, and then we ended up on Roseanne at the same time. So when this came up, she actually got submitted. And then I thought, oh, my God, she would really do one day of work on this you know, little piece. And she happened to be in L.A. that day, and she came and shot it and was so delightful and lovely. And I, I love her to death. To me, she's always seemed like a sister. Mm-hmm. you know, the Jewish sister that I had. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were very close, you know, back before she moved to New York. She used to live in L.A. in the Valley. And we would share birthdays together. It was me and all the lesbians, and we'd be at Marisa's Snack and Chat. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go there? No. The best fried chicken in, in the world. Yeah. And I would bring these mixed tapes <laughs> of black women that talked during their songs, like Shirley Brown and 
and they would play my tapes, and we would just get crazy and have birthdays. Then. Now, children, a mixtape. Yes, was a yes. What is that? Where you would record things <laughs> for your friends. So the reason I get all these people, I usually have worked with I, people that I've worked with before. I did a play entertaining Mr. Sloan with Olivia. Some people are new to my little world, but once they're in my world. They're stuck in there, as I tell them. And I bring them back and drag them into doing different theater pieces and different little TV shows and hopefully a big TV show so that they can get paid, you know, real money because on these web series, we made this one for just $25,000, which is amazing. Yeah. Like, think about that. These six episodes, which this year we're actually going to be hopefully nominated for an Emmy. We're going for your consideration only. Emmys now have a category for short form. So we're putting up Mindy and Barry Bostwick from Skirt Chasers. I was going to say, this is a knack you have because Skirt Chasers also look like a million bucks. And that was your show where Barry Bostrick is a dad, and I forget the actress. Elizabeth Keener and Who Meredith plays Baxter. his lesbian daughter, and they're all skirt chasers. Yes. And that show looked great, and you made that for practically nothing in somebody's backyard, essentially, didn't you? Well, one scene was in my backyard. We did. <laughs> we begged, borrowed, and steal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shot at a restaurant on Highland. And I'm shocked that all these people want to work in web series. But what they've said to me is that they don't get this kind of material often. So they grab it, and they want to keep working. And um, that's what, it, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. But our ultimate goal is to eventually yeah. sell this to like a Hulu or Netflix yeah. or maybe even an NBC. Yeah. Uh, so this is a kind of a, a new way to make the pilot the way we want to make it. And not because, you know, there's so many levels in network TV that people have to sign off on. And this is really one woman, Kristen Baker, who owns Telefilms.com. Mm-hmm. And she's the only person doing lesbian content online. And she just greenlit it one Sunday afternoon. And I hung up the phone. I was like, is that a go? I called her back. I said, can I start casting? And she's like, yeah, that's it. And it, she's been so supportive of me. So, Because I, I, I never understand how people pitch shows. Did you have it completely written or did you just present her with an outline or just uh, basically say over coffee? Well, I had an idea. What do you think? Well, it started with Skirt Chasers. And we had met through Elizabeth Keener at the Abbey, actually. And we'd always wanted to work together. And then could not sell Skirt Chasers because in network television, they only usually buy one gay lesbian show per year and although all these producers love the idea of a father daughter both chasing women they had already bought the new normal which was the ryan murphy show years ago so i was like i don't take no for an answer lightly so i'm thinking like how can i still get this going and i brought it to elizabeth keener and then the two of us brought it to Kristen baker and she greenlit that from skirt chasers she said to me that she wanted me to have our next project and I gave her a bunch of log lines and she picked this one and then off we went. You're also working on a play called Yes, Virginia? Yes, which opened on the 9th. Only have eight shows in April at Studio C on Theater Row on Santa Monica and it's Mindy Sterling and also Elliot English who's been on Broadway named Miss Behaven who I met a billion years ago when I was in New York at the Tom Cruise time, mm-hmm. and we've always wanted to work together. And she was on Curb Your Enthusiasm when he moved in with the black family. Mm-hmm. She was the family. It's a two-character play based on my mother and my longtime housekeeper. And it deals with aging and parents. And if you love the Golden Girls, which I wrote for, it's got that feel to it. So it's super funny, but it's also got a real heart to it. And it's about how two women kind of bond and a role reversal comedy. And so this is the first production of it to get it up in in this teeny tiny theater. Now, Mr. Zimmerman, I imply nothing, but you have been part of the television landscape for a, a while. billion years, yes. 
as a gay writer in Hollywood, how have things changed and, and how out were you when you began? My writing partner and I were not out at all when we started, actually. And people, especially young TV writers, are shocked when they hear that we were told by our agents you had to bring a woman or a beard, as we called them, to any function. When we started, especially on the Golden Girls, I know people think it's very gay positive, we were not out there. So it was very odd when you're in a writer's room and everyone's talking about, what did you do last weekend? And we couldn't say, oh, you know, I went to Studio One or a gay bar or I remember even, this is a little harsh, but we went to a garage sale in Silver Lake. And this was during really the height of the AIDS crisis. And I remember some of the writers were like, you have to sell any clothing you can't wear. I mean, people were not educated at that time. I'll give them that. But it was that backwards. That, so, of course, that kept us more in the closet. And then someone had floated the idea they were doing a piece in the LA Weekly about out people in Hollywood and would we want to be in it. And our agents were like, no, 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 you can't have your pictures. That will ruin your career. And we were like, we have to. That's who we are. And we did it and uh, never looked back. And it's been fantastic, I think. And, um, you know, being able to write the Roseanne Kiss episode, that started to turn things. And you know, I remember Tom Arnold running through the halls at Roseanne, where are my gay guys? <laughs> Which is probably not politically correct, but that's where we were. So we've really seen the gamut from you couldn't be out and open on a writer's room to we would be in the writer's room and completely out. And all these straight writers would be like spending all day asking us gay questions. Mm -hmm. Or I remember like if a pretty girl would walk by the window, they would go, nothing. And so then <laughs> when a hot guy would go by, we'd go, nothing. And at certain times, I'd have to say, can we stop with the gay questions? <laughs> Let's just write the show. Because people just want, you know, they wanted to understand. Well, how long did it take to get comfortable in the industry? Because you never just come out and then it's all taken care of. It's like you have to keep coming out again and again and again on every new job, on every new social situation. In How the beginning you do. I think now if anybody can Google me and see all of that. But I remember we went up for one interview on a TV show and the producer said to us, oh, you're violets. And the look on my face was like, oh my God, he knows we're gay. And actually the Violets was the name of the team at NYU where I went to college. <laughs> I didn't even know. That shows you how much we went to sports at NYU. Although I love the term Violets. I, I thought, is that a regionalism for pansy? See, that's what we thought. <laughs> it's so obvious. What am I wearing? I'm wearing a gay shirt or something. And it was literally just the name of the sports team at NYU. And do you feel incumbent upon you to mentor young gay writers in Hollywood? Or do you think they're pr pretty much fine? I think there's still a stigma about gay material. There are a lot of gay writers, and I just like working with young writers and new writers and give people a hand because I needed a hand when I started out. You're doing God's work, Stan. That's what it is. <laughs> the new Mother Teresa. The gay Mother Teresa. Well, thank you for everything you've done, and we look forward to seeing what's coming up next. Well, thank you for having me. And Stan is also participating in the Hollywood Fringe Festival, which we discussed, but we will run that part later, a little bit closer to the festival. So if you want to check out Sex and Execs or Skirt Chasers, go to tellofilms.com, T-E-L-L-O, films.com. And thanks to Steve Pride for his work editing that piece. That sounded so good. Oh, uh, now it's time to get our little gardens in. And so every spring we run what Steve refers to as the one piece I've ever done. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, 
your official spring tomato tomato. Yes, it's true. Summertime is actually here. And what does summer mean to everybody? Tomatoes. And so to talk tomatoes, we've called in Food Network star finally chef Paul McCullough and producer, director, writer Jeremy Sanford to talk to us about the world of tomatoes. So welcome, gentlemen. You are the men who literally wrote the book on tomatoes. We did. We We literally did. We love our aromatherapy book. And we should point out that's Roma starting with an R, as in Roma Tomato. Now, summer has been here a long time at this point. Oy. When should the tomatoes have gone in? Well, in L.A., the season starts early. So mid-March is when you can get your tomatoes in the ground as long as the plot that you picked for your tomatoes gets about six to eight hours of sun a day. Well, now, how big is your garden? Because you guys are a lot more serious than most people. That's a personal question, how big my <laughs> garden is. And how does it grow, sir? It grows. Lovely. <laughs> we have a, a pretty large backyard with a beautiful avocado tree and an orange tree. And currently, we have 22 tomato plants in raised beds. And how many varieties have you guys gone with? Out of 24, I think I probably have 20 varieties and four repeats. And what is your favorite? What's your favorite, Jeremy? I always buy the Aussie. <laughs> the Roma. <laughs> we actually have a couple of Romas this year. Paul has not had much success growing Roma tomatoes, but we have two that are actually thriving. The irony. The irony. Yes, after writing the book about them. I've never been able to grow a Roma that didn't have the blossom and rot, didn't uh-huh. just look like this stunted version of something that I wished it could be. But this year, I have two San Marzanos, and they are looking amazing. I brought Jeremy out. I'm like, honey, look, I think the curse is lifted. And those are expensive when you buy them in the store, too. So nicely done. Now, to get back to varieties, because a lot of people are afraid if they don't see a red tomato. Like, I've read that they can't really sell yellow tomatoes in Europe because Europeans just don't cotton to them. What is the difference between varieties beyond the cosmetic? Because I know there there are white ones that actually look like organs out there. Mm. Organs. Like like drained kidneys or something. I mean, <laughs> like, uh, it looks so, it looks well like a plant uterus. Yeah. It's exactly what it looks well, like. Well, originally they were yellow. I mean, the very first tomatoes were yellow. And that's where the Italian word pomodoro comes from because it's a golden apple. But is a difference in texture and flavor? Is it just... Everything. Yeah, everything. Texture, flavor, the water content, the thickness of the skin, the meatiness of the fruit inside. Some people say, oh, you should never just slice a Roma tomato and eat it on a sandwich. Well, actually, if I, well, this year when I picked the ones that I've actually grown, they're absolutely delicious. And the green zebra stripes are a perfect example of a green tomato that as it ripens up, you just think, is that ripe? Is that ripe? And then as it's ripening up, it gets a nice yellow sort of blush over the top of it. And the stripes just go really deep green to the bottom to this really pale green on top. And it's bright and acidic and just amazing and delicious. You can cut some of those and top it on a piece of halibut. And there's just so many varieties that we can grow here in California. The chocolate stripes and the little yellow pears and the beefsteaks and the Aussies and they're ones that are shaped like peppers. Now, now what are the Aussies? Because I, I know you mentioned that that's one of your favorites. Well, they're generally big and thick. 
We're talking tomatoes. Right? We are. Okay. Because a tomato is a weed, and it wants to not stand up. It wants to sprawl all over your garden and just keep sending out tendrils and just have as many tomatoes as possible. One thing you'll notice the varieties of tomatoes is the thickness of the wall, and that's why Romas are a paste tomato, which mm-hmm. is one of the sort of four main categories. And they have a much thicker wall, which is less seeds and more wall. And that's why they use those for tomato paste, tomato sauce, just because it's a much thicker media tomato. Here's a question somebody asked me. The suckers, that little tiny shoot between the branch and the main stem, they Mm -hmm. said, make sure you take them off. And I always mean to, but then I run out of energy. To pinch or not to pinch. Exactly. What are your feelings, gentlemen? I'm a no-pinch kind of guy, but... I know some people like to do it, but I don't think you need to. Are you staring at Paul with... As I pinch him. (laughs) I think you need to pinch a little bit because my raised bed only has so much space. And, for example, this one plant that I have is really growing, and it is like gangbusters. If I don't pinch off some of that growth, it's going to take over and shade my other plants. There's not going to be as much airflow, which is really important in your tomato garden. So I'd say pinch 50% of what you have. Now, here's a... To get precious... When people talk about grapes, they always like to talk about the terroir and the, the flavors it brings from the local soil into the fruit. Do tomatoes actually do that to a degree that you've noticed, or is that just beyond twee? I think they do. You know, our friends up in Ojai have an amazing plot of land, and they have all the space they want to need, so they never pinch, and they have really hard clay soil. And so they're amending a lot. But the tomatoes, we both grew green zebra stripes. His green zebra stripes had a distinctly different flavor when we went and tasted than mine did, growing here in my backyard, on actually on Gardner Street, <laughs> and in my raised bed where I've amended the soil with compost and, and, and worm casings and cow poop and miracle grow potting soil to give it as much as possible because without it, I'm just sticking a tomato plant in my ground in the backyard is not a favorable condition for that plant. So, What do you do to keep pests away short of spraying everything with malathion, which I assume we all don't think mm. is a good thing? And then, Dr. Earth has a really great organic insect spray. But I think, you know, like roses like to be fussed over, I think your tomato plant likes to be handled a little bit. And check it out. If you see some small pests, you get some of that spray on there, pick off the big ones. And it is a good idea to not to grow your tomatoes in the same area of your yard every year, because then the pest can get established there. Okay, now there's undeniably nothing better than a fresh tomato from the garden with just a little sprinkling of salt. (sighs) But what is your favorite simple thing to do that isn't quite that simple when you've got a warm tomato right in your hand? And one of the easiest things to do is just, if you have Roman tomatoes, anything, cut them in half, little oil, salt, pepper, stick them in your oven, and just roast them. And it really develops the flavor, and they get super sweet, and the flavor is amazing. So generally, tomatoes like to struggle a little bit. You don't want to Mm. overwater them because you can actually dilute the taste. Anyway, because this is the Gay Agenda Show, we have selected for your edification a variety of tomatoes that you may find interesting. I found... A tomato called Aunt Ruby's German Cherry, (laughs) which sounds like a lesbian euphemism. This is a green cherry tomato. What did you find, Paul? I found one called the White Queen. Ooh. She's a big round girl with a beautiful green top. I ran across one that shares its name with the fourth book in the Armistice Maupin Tales of the City series. It's called Baby Cakes, and it's a red cherry with, and I quote, 
a natural salty flavor. Mm. Mm. What about the beef master? What about the beef master? I mean, master? that just opens up a whole. I mean, everyone needs a good beef master in their garden. Beef master. Beef master. Jeremy. Uh, and the beef master is good friends with a pink pounder. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can grow both at the same time. Are you familiar with a pink pounder? Is it large? Oh, yes. It's pink and it's large. <laughs> That's all you need. Well, I did run across one called Sappho. Sappho? Mm-hmm. It's a red cherry with a sweet acid flavor. Mm. Sappho. Well, gentlemen, this has been a most satisfying little tour through the world of tomatoes. Thank you so much for coming out. Oh, well, thank you. It's nice to be here again. Well, it's lovely to see you all again. So for more information, people go to romatherapy.com and don't forget the hyphen between Roma and therapy. Also, paulskitchen.com to find out more about Mr. McCullough. There you go. And if anyone is listening and would like to order the book as a special, uh, extra special gift, we have this great aromatherapy magnet that we'll throw in there as well. And it's got all these measure equivalents and it's wonderful for baking. So Why, I'm looking at one right now and I can't wait to put it up on my refrigerator when I get home. So thank you again for coming out, Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford. And this is Wenzel Jones for IMRU. It's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. It's summertime. And I uh, sent Paul a note saying that we were running this piece again, and I said, I'll be sure to tell people that the offer of the measurement conversion magnet is probably not still good. And he said, oh, no, we've, we've got some. So get online, go to Romatherapy, order yourself a book, and get yourself a measurement conversion magnet. I never get tired of that piece. Wenzel, you're so in your element. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> it's a good thing. Thank you. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, as well as tonight's fill-in director, Steve Pride, board op Federico Garcia, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and, of course, my co-host tonight, the lovely and glamorous Michelle Marie Gilkison. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. We'll close with a song from out musician Josh Zuckerman called Got Love. Good night, everyone. Let's speak the words to the parents that will preach to their kids that are freaks. Just because they're different doesn't really matter what they say, what they see. All the children
to you, tall, short, see right through you, and we'll live in fear, brings me to tears, get love.